really is good to see you. I, I, I must be honest. I went to bed last night very insecure. And uh, my wife had to just say, no, no, Richard. It's okay, Jesus builds his church. Going to two morning meetings, and you just don't quite know how many people are going to rock up. And then what happened in the first service was we were up into the balconies as we are now, and I couldn't even enjoy the first service because I thought, shucks, we've got almost a full first service. Who's going to come to the second service? And uh, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief as we go. So thank you. Thank you for being part of actually a a momentous day for us as a community, uh, that we actually create space for God to keep doing His thing amongst us. Jesus is building His church. And uh, I can't manufacture that, as Jackie had to remind me last night. All I get to do is preach the gospel. And, uh, and we do this as we believe in this message of salvation, as we bring people into that story that we've come to know and love. And I trust that today, if you're sitting here and you're from out of town or you're a family member and uh, you don't even know what church is about, or maybe you do the once a year thing at Easter, uh, I, I want to say thank you. Thank you for coming. You're in a good place. Because what happens is when we, we start to worship God, you kind of go, Jeepers, what are all these people singing about? How can they sing with such passion? I, I'm only used to that at sporting stadiums, but now we're having it in an auditorium. And then this guy's going to now talk for 30 minutes. What, what is that all about? Actually, I, I trust that the Spirit of God is going to draw you into coming to know this Jesus that many of us in this room love. And so I want to thank you for having the courage to come here, whether you're from out of town or a family member or Whatever it is that's got you sitting here, I'm just very, very appreciative, and so thank you. So a few years ago, uh, about 13 or 14 years ago, I was on this property, and I'm pointing over here because there used to be like a little walkway. There wasn't a coffee shop, and I tripped over a garden paver. Now, the garden paver, as you know, probably stands about that high when it is not sunken into the ground. This one was sunken into the ground, but there was a little lip. So call it two centimeters was all that was sticking out. And I was walking and happened to be reading the newspaper at the time. Not a good idea to read a newspaper while walking with garden pavers. And I stepped on the end and went over on my foot and immediately felt an unbelievable excruciating pain. Like excruciating. I dropped to the ground. Externally, I was grateful no one was around because... It took me a moment to have an external manly expression, but there was that moment where the internal baby in me would have had some kind of manifestation. But inside I was crying, just with this excruciating pain. Long story short, I had broken a bone in my foot, and as I tried to get up to to walk, you just felt all the blood rush to the injury. And as the blood rushed to the injury, I collapsed in a heap again, like a little baby, with this excruciating pain. I don't know if any of you have broken bones or what it may be, but I'm sure everyone's got a story of excruciating pain that they have felt, right? So, uh, thanks, Jax. It's encouraging. I can keep going. But then this week, as I was studying the story of Jesus again, I learned something, and I don't think I'm ever going to be allowed to use excruciating as a word to describe my pain. Because I I learned this week that in the days of crucifixions, so that's where people are murdered on a cross. 
Like that's the form of execution, the form of death. When people observed that, there was no word in any language that truly captured the emotion of the pain that that person was experiencing. And so they came up with a new word. Excruciate. Excruciating. And so it comes, the base is is crucifix uh, for the word excruciating, and it comes from Latin and uh, uh, from a Latin derivative. But excruciating was a word that was reserved for the pain experienced being executed by the cross. And as I've just been processing this message for, for us today, and as I kind of go back and I say, God, what was one of the moments that was excruciating pain for me? And I remember that moment. Uh, obviously, I remember some of the emotional pain, the excruciating depth of pain that uh, we've experienced in the last few months with Kiara in those early days. I've tried to put it, I've, I've had to reframe it into the context of Jesus and reread the story. And so what I want to do this morning is just take the first few minutes to read to us the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And I want to read it with some emotion and expression, which I hope will help it come alive a little bit more to us, understanding the excruciating pain of it. And so this is what I would like you to do. Some of us are visual learners, so we we see something and we learn it. And I'm going to encourage you to close your eyes as I read, and, and your brain can start to, your mind can start to paint the picture as I read it. Some of us are, uh, are are kind of learners where we, we've got to see the writing, it's going to come up on the screen and you can follow it with me. But really what I would like you to do is to try and create this image of excruciating pain that Jesus went through. Is that okay? Part of Good Friday is that we would remember and we would partly identify and experience something of what our Savior went through, that we may know Him more fully. My goal this morning is that we would understand why it's a Good Friday. Why is this a Good Friday when our Savior died and went through excruciating pain? So we're going to go to to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 27. and, And what's happened in verse 26, which I didn't include here because it wasn't part of the crucifixion, but it was part of what Jesus had to experience, was Jesus has been... Uh, had been brought before a guy called Pontius Pilate who had the power of life and death in his hands. He could, he could say Jesus is not going to die. Or he could say that Jesus is going to die in this moment. And he was trying to convince the Jewish nation that Jesus shouldn't die. And so what he did to, to kind of like convince them was they had Jesus, he had Jesus whipped, flogged. 40 less one time. So 39 times Jesus was flogged on the back. That wasn't part of the crucifixion. He was just hoping that the Jews would go, okay, that's enough. It didn't happen that way. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 27. And so we must remember that Jesus on his back has already carried 39 floggings. Matthew chapter 27 from verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on his head. That word set is they pushed it. They pressed it into his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and then they knelt in front of him, and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! 
and they spat on him and they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again and again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and they put on his own clothes and then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross We read between the lines and it has written in another account. It's because Jesus' back was so badly ripped to pieces. His body was so frail, having been lashed 39 times, having lost blood around his head and brain area as the thorns had been pressed upon him, as he had been spat on and mocked, as he had been hit on the head with a staff again and again and again, and he could no longer carry the weight of the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, when they had crucified him, just a very simple statement. Let me unpack it for you. When they had nailed nails through his ankles to a wooden beam and nailed nails through his wrists to a wooden beam. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said. But can he say, he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is Jesus, flogged 39 times, crown of thorns pressed pressed into his skull. He has been hit with a staff on the head again and again and again. He has had nails nailed through his ankles into the, the, the vertical beam. He has had nails nailed through his wrists to the vertical beam. The excruciating physical pain. On top of that, he has been insulted and he has been mocked. And yet he stood there or he hung there with courage because he knew his father loved him. And then there is this moment of the most excruciating pain. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me, my God? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar and he put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. 
At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of, uh, they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Jesus, we pray, we pray that as we reflect on this account of your crucifixion, the excruciating pain that you went through, we pray, Spirit of God, that you would reveal in even greater measure the glory of Jesus Christ. Would you show us in even greater measure why today is a good Friday? Help us to see, help us to take hold of this life of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning what I want to do is I, I want to try and connect some dots for us. Uh, some of you may, may remember dot-to-dot -dot drawings, and they would be numbered. And as we connected the dots, a picture would emerge. And really, my prayer this morning is that even for those of us that have known Jesus for many years, our lives are buried in Him, taken hold of Him. I really do trust that this morning there would be even greater revelation of who He is. I said last week in our Vision Sunday that I love photography, good photography, because it sheds light on an object, and you get to see it in a way that you never saw it before. And I trust that today as we just connect some scriptural dots together, we would see Jesus in an even greater way than we've ever seen him before. That's my prayer for us this morning. It says in John chapter 10 verse 18, as people are pressing Jesus, and Jesus says, hey guys, let me just remind you, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. And I will pick it up again. No one takes my life from me. So we've got to answer the question. Why on earth would Jesus go through such an excruciatingly painful experience willingly? Willingly. He wasn't forced to go there. At any time he could have called on a legion of angels to get him off the cross. It was not people that kept him it, it wasn't the guards that kept him on the cross. What kept him there? And just before John chapter 10 verse 18 is John 10, 10. And uh, Jesus kind of ends that passage with, I willingly give my life. The purpose being, I've come that you may have life. That you may have life. We sit here in this room. Having just read the account, reminded ourselves of the account of Jesus Christ going through an incredibly, excruciatingly painful experience, willingly. And that is connected to the story of another dot, which is, I've come that you may have life. And so how do we bridge that gap? How do we get from, he's done this thing willingly, to us having life? How, what are the dots that go in between that, that help paint the picture that we can take hold of? have greater revelation of Jesus, and therefore fall even more deeply in love with Him. And so that our lives would be more fully laid down and devoted to this great God and Savior that we serve. 
quite interesting that as Jesus teaches around the kingdom of God, the Sabbath rest is often brought up in reference to God's pattern for his people of God. And so God, we see at the creation account, he worked for six days and then rested for a day. When it was done, he rested. And then he put that in and he called Israel, the the people that he was forming as his own people, the people that were going to live under the blessing of the Father in heaven. He said, actually, one day, one day a week, you need to rest. And what rest looks like is not necessarily just putting feet up and catching a breather. Rest is actually trust. It's trusting in God. Because if I don't work, who's going to look after my crops? If I don't work, who's going to look after my business? If I don't work, so Sabbath rest is actually around do we trust God for our future and our inheritance? That's what Sabbath is about. And Jesus is always connecting life to Sabbath rest, life to confidence for eternity, life to being able to trust in Him for our futures, for everything. Not trusting in ourselves for provision or whatever it may be. And so we get this next dot. We get a dot of excruciating pain and willingly putting himself there. We get this dot of, uh, I have come that they may have life. And we get this dot of life being connected to Sabbath rest. And then to try and understand Sabbath rest, we want to see what the scriptures have to say about that. And God used Isaiah, who was an Old Testament prophet, who would speak to God's ordained people. So today, we sit as God's ordained people, those that have come to know Jesus Form his church. Pre Jesus, God had chosen a people called Israel who still live in the blessing of the Father. But in this time, there was a prophet called Isaiah, and he had to remind them of the blessing and inheritance of God that's only found in acknowledging his pattern and his ways, which was Sabbath rest. So we read in uh, Isaiah chapter 58. Verse 13 to 14, Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the hearts of the earth. Who doesn't want to ride on the hearts of the earth? Rhetorical question. I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Effectively, what Isaiah is saying is, Israel, you're losing out on some of the inheritance of God because your delight is not in the Sabbath. And what does the Sabbath represent? A trust in God. Your delight is not in trusting God. You're trying to do this your own way. Therefore, you're losing out on the inheritance and the blessing of the father. If you submit yourself, if you give yourself, if you trust your life into the Father's hands, into God's hands, by honoring and obeying the Sabbath, if you delight in that, you're going to ride on the wings of the earth, or whatever it is, the hearts of the earth. You're going to inherit the heritage of Jacob, your father. And we're going to look at what that means, the heritage of Jacob. It's interesting that Jesus, Good Friday... Jesus died on what they call the day of preparation. The Sabbath was coming for the people. So so this day when Jesus is on the cross that we remember, the next day was the Sabbath day, which was the day of rest. The day of preparation was the day that Israel uh, Jewish families would prepare themselves. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I know on the days, so kind of Saturday is my day of rest. Uh, when, I, when I prepare towards a Saturday, I get to have rest. When I don't prepare, I get overcome by chores and all the little things that I didn't get to do. And they're kind of, well, I've got a gap on Saturday. And so I fill all of those things into my Saturday. So I'm not sure about you, but by experience and observation, those that prepare well enjoy the fruit of rest. Those that don't prepare well don't enjoy the fruit of rest. I don't think it was a coincidence that Jesus died on the day of preparation. And if we read the scriptures, it talks about, actually, it was during the Passover week. And uh, I'm not going to teach on all of that now. I trust you can go and study that on your own. But um, there was one week in the year, there was a Passover week, so it said the Sabbath, the Sabbath day was going to be a special Sabbath. So Jesus died on the day of preparation for a special Sabbath, which is special rest. Not just a weekly rest, but a special rest. Okay, God, that's another dot. I'm starting to see this picture form here. I'm starting to see the excruciating pain of the cross you willingly went through because it's connected to our come that you may have life, which is, and life is connected to rest, but actually to to get to rest, there has to be preparation. Jesus, you died on the day of preparation. Hey, maybe there's something that Jesus is the preparation for the eternal rest or the special Sabbath that's coming. Ah, oh, sheep, is the picture starting to become a little clearer now as we study the scriptures? And then Isaiah says, if you seek that, if you make it your pleasure, if you delight in rest... If you desire that, if you want it, then you can have it and you will you'll soar on the hearts, you'll ride on the hearts of the earth and you will feed on the heritage of Jacob. And so I'm thinking, geez, Jacob, in my mind, doesn't have a great rap. Jacob was the deceiver. He was the swindler. It's not often in the scriptures that uh, Jacob is mentioned positively. I mean, we have Abraham, the father of our faith. We have Joshua who led the people of Israel into their inheritance. We had Moses who led them out of captivity. We have Jacob, the liar and deceiver and swindler. Why, if I desire uh, the Sabbath, why, if I delight in that, is that connected to the heritage of Jacob? I don't know if I want to come from the heritage of Jacob. And so it forced me to go and study it, and I want to bring the revelation that I've had just this week. And so I, I trust it's not clumsily put out there, and I trust you're able to take hold of, I, I felt like I got saved again this week, and I know theologically I didn't get saved again, but because uh, my trust is in Jesus, but I think God just shone the light on Jesus Christ in an even greater way, a different angle, so he's become an even more fuller picture to me. Jesus is not a picture. And so I went and looked, what is this heritage of Jacob? Jacob was a brother, had a brother called Esau. Esau was the older brother. Jacob was the younger brother. Esau was the man's man. Jacob wasn't. Esau hunted. Jacob was a vegetarian. Esau, as the older son, was going to get the inheritance and the blessing of the father. Jacob wasn't. There were many things that would disqualify Jacob from getting hold of an inheritance. And then there's this encounter where Isaac, who is their father, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
Isaac is an old man and it comes time for him to pass on the inheritance and the blessing. And so he calls Esau, his oldest, and he says, my son, it's time for me to bless you. It's time for me to pass on the inheritance of the father to the son. And so this is what I'm going to ask you to do, Esau. Will you go out? You know your dad loves a good game meat stew. Can you go and hunt something, prepare a stew, come, we'll eat a meal together, and then what we're going to do is I'm going to put my hands on you and I'm going to bless you and you'll gain the inheritance and the blessing. Jacob's mom hears this. But Jacob was mommy's boy. And so mommy's, mommy's, mommy goes to mommy's boy and says, hey, Esau's gone out and it's time for the blessing. Your father's blind. He's lost his sight. He's old. We can do something here. This is what we're going to do. Jacob, go and get two lambs. Go and get the two nicest lambs you can out of our flock. I'll prepare a stew. And then what we're going to do is you're going to take some of that, you're going to take the lamb's skin, their lamb's wool, and you're going to tie it onto yourself. Because Esau was a hairy guy. Jacob was, he waxed. It was getting a little heavy in this auditorium. He was a cyclist. Focus. He was going to put the, wool's, uh, the, the sheep's wool on his hands. And then the mom said, while I'm preparing the stew, go and get some of Esau's clothes and put them on you. Go and put them on you. And so this is all taking place. Then Esau comes and he's all dressed in Esau's clothes. And he's got this kind of furry feel to him because that's what Esau felt like. And comes to Isaac who is blind, and the only way that he can tell who this boy is is to feel him and smell him. And that's where we're going to pick up the story, and then I'm going to get to the point of why we had live in the legacy of Jacob. Genesis chapter 27, from verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. So remember, he's pretending to be Esau. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him, and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy, hairy like those of his brother Esau, and so he proceeded to bless him. But just before he blessed him, Are you really my son Esau? he asked. So you can see he's, he's blind, and it's, you, you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. You sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. I don't want to bless the wrong guy. I don't want to give an inheritance to the wrong guy. Come, come a little closer. Are you really my son? I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat. Now remember, mom, mom had already prepared a little lamb stew. That I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. You can see his, his mind, he's like, this is, not, this is not right. Something's out of order here. This is, this is Jacob to my ear. But to touch it's Esau. Come a little closer. Come and kiss me. And as he went, 
to him and kissed him. And Isaac caught the smell of his clothes because he's clothed himself in Esau's clothes. He blessed him and he said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. And then proceeded to bless him. We won't read the blessing, but proceeded to bless him. And what happened was Jacob received the inheritance and the blessing that was due to Esau. Now, I've always read that and I've gone, you wicked, deceptive man. Maybe like some of us. And then I read Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 58 puts it in the positive tense. And says, actually, if you desire the Sabbath rest, if you desire this, actually, you're going to soar on the hearts of the earth. You're going to ride on the hearts of the earth, and you're going to live in the legacy of Jacob. And I'm like, whoa, I, but the legacy of Jacob is deception. And, and then you read it, and you actually go, no, Jacob, everything disqualified him from getting an inheritance. But he so desired it, he was so hungry for it, that he clothed himself he hid himself in other clothes in order to receive the inheritance. And I believe God would say to us today, friends, we can smell, uh, we can sound like Richard, but we have the opportunity today to smell and feel like Jesus if we hide ourselves in him. I sound like Richard. I wake up this morning with insecurities. Am I going to preach to anybody? All through the first service, I'm preaching this, and I'm thinking, who's going to be at 10 o'clock? There's insecurities. It's, it sounds like Richard. Colossians 3, verse 3. Hidden in Christ. Hidden in Christ. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We smell and we feel like Jesus. And those of us, like Jacob, who were disqualified from an inheritance because we were the younger brother, because we were the mommy's boy, because we waxed, because we were sinful, because we did this. A hundred, whatever reason you can come up with for the disqualification of God loving you and inheritance from the Father, Jesus comes in one excruciatingly painful moment, willingly to say, I give it to you, hide yourself in my life, and you can be covered by my clothes as Jacob was in Esau's clothes, and the blessing of the Father can be yours. Friends, this is unbelievably amazing. Unbelievably amazing. Because I know some of your stories, and I know some of the things that you're battling with that you feel like you're disqualified from the inheritance of God and the blessing of God. And today, Jesus would say, that is rubbish. It is not true. Take hold of me. Take hold of the excruciatingly painful experience that I went through so that you don't have to, so that you can be hidden. I want, to, I want to expound it through an illustration. There's a place by Hootspreit. Hootspreit's a small little place, kind of like midway up the Kruger National Park in terms of latitude. And uh, there's a place there. It, it used to be a cheetah rehabilitation center, and now it's kind of grown, and it's a reserve, and, and all that kind of stuff. And Jax and I have uh, had the privilege of going there a couple of times. I love going to the Bushveld. It may not be your thing. It's my thing. And I love taking our kids there. And we're in this open-top vehicle, and we're driving around this small little reserve. The beauty of a small little reserve is that you see everything, because they're all there. And, uh, and so we're going, and there's rhino, and there's cheetah, and there's, there's wild dog, and all of this stuff. And then we start to see some vultures in the air. And vultures from a distance can actually be quite beautiful. And so everything is just, it's just beautiful. 
It smells good. It feels good. Everything's right. And then we come around the corner, and the game ranger just says, hey, we're about to enter the Vulture restaurant. We're like, oh, that's going to be interesting. Let's go. And uh, we go around the corner, and we start to see these vultures a little bit closer. And then suddenly it hits us, this stench. It is so vulgar, like you just don't know what to do with yourself. And then you come a little bit further around the corner, and you actually see what they call the Vulture restaurant. And it's an area probably about this size. And all the meat that they feed the rehabilitated wildlife with, the cats and all of that stuff, all the rotten carcasses go here. And then what happens is the vultures come and feed. But the smell, it's like, anyone experienced it? It's like, it's worth going. No, 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 I'll tell you why. Because you'll see what sin smells like in the nose of God. It is so revolting, and the game ranger, who's hardly said anything the whole time, decides that's the time he wants to get verbal diarrhea. And so now you park there, and you just you 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 don't know what to do. You're in an open top vehicle, and you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you you just like just get us away. You can tell us the story away from here, please. Can we just go away? The problem is, you stay there long enough that it starts seeping into your clothes, and it gets into you, and it gets into your nose hairs. And then, and then you wished you did wax. And then it gets, and then you're like, it's, you just cannot get away from it. And then you drive away, and you're like, oh, thank God. And then you turn like this to face your wife, and then it's all in her hair. And it's on my shoulder. And you just can't get away from the stench. You just cannot get away from the stench. And it's just a complete misfit. You're in this beautiful game reserve. It's, open, it's like, it's, it just doesn't fit. And as Isaac was like, it's the voice of Jacob, but it smells and feels like Esau. There's no non-fit here. Friends, I want to tell us that it says in the scriptures that sin, what the, what, what, what the result of sin is it causes rot and decay. Rot and decay. And so although I may not smell it in you and you may not smell it in me, God smells it. And it is a stench in his nostrils. It's a stench in his nostrils. And you just want to get away from it. It is like, it is so vulgar. And it gets into our clothes. And so the only way that we're able to rid ourselves of the stench of sin is to derobe and put on Esau's clothes. You follow that through. Not actually Esau's, but Jesus's. And it's actually to take this thing off that has got into our garments. It's got into our nose hairs. There's rotten decay taking place in us because we are sinful by nature. And then Jesus comes and he says it is for life. And life is eternal rest. And rest has to take a preparation. But we don't have to prepare because Jesus has done it. He has been the preparation. He is the preparation. And as we take hold of him and his death and his blood, and we're able to hide our lives in his, cri- hide our lives in his life, and uh, take hold of Christ, so we're able to take off the stench of sin, the stench of rotting carcasses, and we're able to put on His clothes. And so actually we come to the Father, and He says, I know you, Richard, but I also know my son, Jesus, and you smell and feel like Jesus today. And you can live in the blessing and the favor and the inheritance of our Father. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning. It's not just Good Friday. 
It's not just Good Friday. We have an opportunity this morning to recenter ourselves in the completed work of Jesus Christ, who willingly, willingly kept himself in excruciating pain, where it wasn't just physical, there was emotional abuse. And to top it all off, in that moment when he took all the sin and rot and decay of our lives upon himself, the Father also closed his eyes upon him and turned his back upon him in that moment when Jesus had to defend and, and fight that battle for, on our behalf. The excruciating pain Jesus felt was so that you may walk in freedom, that you may walk in life, that I may walk in life. And what fullness of life looks like is eternal rest, eternal trust in God. But we have to desire it, friends. Jacob could have lived with being the second child, but he said, I desire and inheritance. But the inheritance doesn't come by my own hands. It comes by my Father's blessing. And the way we walk into that is by receiving Jesus. And so I want to give those of you here this morning who have never, have never taken on Christ's life as a cloak around you. You've heard of this Jesus. You've maybe seen him encounter people. But you've never said, actually, I have to come into a place where I trust, a Sabbath rest, a desire to trust you, God. I can't do this of my own accord. I have to trust you. I have to trust you, Jesus, that your death truly does give me eternal life, which we believe it does. And so if you are here this morning and you want to say, Rich, I know that I need to put my life into Jesus' hands, and you've never done that before, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to understand everything. It just takes humility to go, actually, I, I know that for me to enter eternal rest, for me to walk into the blessing of a God in heaven, I need to take hold of the preparation for me, which is the person, Jesus. I'm going to ask you with great courage to raise your hand. I'd love to pray with you if there is anybody here.